Well, you have to pick right now. Um, which package am I more captivated by? Quoting that one too. Prob- probably. <laughs> Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Finally, after what feels like months and months of isolation, I get to speak with another human being. Unfortunately, not in person, but you know, we've got internet technology. I don't have to ramble by myself for an hour. Jay Kyle Mann of The Ringer. Thanks so much for coming by and talking about basketball with me. You know, this is life is reflecting basketball in a way right now and that isolation is just uh is not where you want to be you know you don't want to be in an isolation heavy life you want to have a look you want to mix it up i tried for something there i don't know yeah. if that quite worked but emotion offense yeah you want to you want to mix up your looks a little bit you want to you know run some off-screen stuff keep it versatile keep it light how you, you doing man i'm i'm doing about as well as i think anybody could be doing under these circumstances got my health and all that how about you i'm good i mean uh it, we we keep a running dialogue i'm sitting here looking at my my uh arms uh i am in two wrist braces right now uh double i'm i'm double braced <laughs> i have one on my left and right hand uh because you know when this whole thing started i thought to myself this is a great opportunity. I was like, this is a great opportunity where the world is going to be shut in. So Kyle, what you should do is just go bananas with the research. Uh, I'm ex- I'm expecting child, as you know. My wife is pregnant. Congratulations. So I, I thought uh, before that child gets here, I'm going to just really cash in on all this time I have. And uh, maybe overdid it a little bit. Overdid <laughs> it a little bit. Uh, I I pulled like, you know four nights in a row of like staying up until one in the morning, like 13 hour days of just watching uh, tape and stuff like that and started to get some soreness in my thumbs. Oh my goodness. And, uh, and the back of my hands. And I was like, I haven't felt this in a long time. This is bad. And then it just turned into full blown uh, pain. <laughs> so, 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 okay. Back on task. Cause we're supposed to talk about basketball. You're telling me that, You've been watching so many old games that you basketball inj- caused this. You yeah. injured your hands. You have like Bill Walton's feet in your hands right now from watching all of these old games. I don't have any structural deficiencies. I don't think in my hands. I mean, I think that they take the normal. It's it's amazing. We we had that funny conversation the other night where I was like. Uh, I was like, yeah, I read somewhere that the magic mouse is apparently not what you should be using if you're <laughs> That's right. if you're editing basically 90% of your life and the horror <laughs> that I could sense. You were like, what? Oh, oh my God, no. I actually had a small heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I, do, I do have some like, I've got some mitts. I've got some big hands and using the magic mouse... Over time, you know, I I would notice here and there, I'd be like, it's kind of uncomfortable. Like, I feel like I'm squeezing it a lot. I kind of lurch over it with my hand like a tarantula. And, um, yeah, that's not good, apparently. I, I really didn't put much thought into the ergonomics of my setup. And somebody who watches tape and edits for a living now, I figured it was time to do that. So this was a good wake-up call. Using that mouse, I think, is basically the Ludovico treatment for basketball editors. That was a Clockwork Orange reference that seems to have I've never seen that passed movie. you up. Oh, man. Well, we'll leave that for another 
another day. So uh, for our clockwork, our Kubrick pod, we'll yes. do that. Oh, can we do one of those? <laughs> okay. So one of the things that you did to injure yourself is this incredible series that I wanted to discuss with you. Get sort of the director's commentary. Uh, Kyle has been producing ongoing. It's on. It's ongoing. It's not over. Yes. You spoke of it as if it's over. It's, it's no, ongoing. no. It's it. I mean, it's a living, breathing thing. It might go on forever. So <laughs> over at the Ringer, Kyle, what number are you on right now? Three, four. We're on three. We're doing okay. three. <laughs> so he is putting together. Uh, this podcast is off to a, a, an incredible start already. He's putting together a series on all of the signature moves in basketball history and so far tell everyone what you've got where you're at so far he started with uh, we started with uh george gervin's fango roll mm-hmm. that was my patented that was my patented shot one thing i could do was finger roll <laughs> one thing he could do was finger roll and then uh we moved on to the crossover dribble uh tim hardaway's utep two-step killer crossover uh that was episode two and right now i'm working on you can imagine uh, what I'm working on next because it's very, very topical. That's what I would say. You could guess. Jerry Krause's jumper. That's correct. Jerry Krause's uh, swiveling hips the air, on the airplane. That's I'm going to be breaking that tape down. And uh, no, we're see. we're we're joking. You're doing the you're doing the high release, unblockable, unstoppable Bill Cartwright mid ranger. <laughs> yeah, man. I uh, speaking of like the things that put me in the uh, predicament that. Um, I don't know if you ever had people ask you this, but um, I was I was on um, a show like a local show, a friend of mine. Um, I don't get invited recently. to local shows, so <laughs> that's out already. Uh, you're just not nice to anybody, man. That's your problem. You should you this should give it a shot. I know. Uh, I'm trying. Okay, so you're on a local show. I was on a local show, and uh, and they were like, "Man, what are you going to do? Uh, basketball's not going on." And I was just like, "Imagine." This is what my life is like. It really hasn't made a huge difference for me because just imagine you are shoveling uh, gravel. Like let's say you're somebody that shovels gravel for for a living and there's just this – and you shovel every day and the pile never seems to move. That's what my life is like in terms of like topics for basketball. and right. like, It's just unending. I mean like all that's really happened is just like current basketball isn't coming into it anymore, but I don't notice. So right. uh, in terms of – uh, working on this uh, this project, what I was going to tell you was, in a roundabout way, I was re-watching Bulls Hawks from 1991. Um, Doc Rivers checking Michael Jordan, and you mentioned Bill Cartwright, and there was a moment in that game that I thought was the most 90s moment I'd ever seen in my life, where <laughs> Jordan caught the ball on the wing, just sort of was beyond the three-point line, and he just nonchalantly faked a three. Doc Rivers didn't even bite, didn't jump towards it, didn't do anything. He just sort of half haphazardly did it and then just lazily threw the ball into to a Bill Cartwright post-up, and I thought that was the most 90s thing I've ever seen in my life. So no threat for a three there at all. What about – Still there? Yeah, no, I'm just <laughs> thinking of – now I'm thinking of really 90s things. What about like uh, – <laughs> Xavier McDaniel, there's another really 90s thing. Well, uh, light light wash <laughs> jeans, you know. It's true. Things like that. It was tie-dye in vogue in, in the 90s. We have actually set a Pavement record. Pavement albums. I think we've set a record in the first few minutes of this podcast for references people, references that uh, cannot be understood by people under the age of 30. 
What's, just, we're on a roll. Do you, do you have a big under 30 audience? I do. Yeah. Why not? Okay. All I people, think my audience is mostly like, I looked at it one time. It was like 14 to 24 or something. Like, I mean, that's a lot of YouTube pretty much. I, I've right? got a diverse audience and I'm very excited about it. So <laughs> I try to, I, I try to hit a, you know, a cornucopia of references during each podcast. Some from modern day. I'm not as hip as I used to be though. So those are, those are lacking. You were hip at one point? No. That's what I thought. All right. Where were we? What are we? You, we're, steer the ship, man. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so let's start with, well, you tell me. You've been doing the Signature Move series. And the thing that I love that you do in general when you get into player analysis, but it's really coming out here in this series, you look at players and you dissect what makes what makes their best successful. If you take a player, if you take Michael Jordan, and you say, okay, why was he such a good rim finisher? You will go in there and you will look at the way he hangs in the air, the different angles that he holds the ball at, why it's in one hand, the fact that his giant hands allow him to put it in one hand. You you get in there and you draw that canvas and I think really illuminate those kinds of things. So, Well, what, what I'm interested in doing and what... What has been fun about this series in particular is that you really start to get an idea. I, I think I went into it expecting to sort of highlight people who invented moves, but that almost never seems to be the case. Like there there are very few guys that in the NBA have done one-off moves that are just not replicable because I, I've broken it down into categories which are what inspired the move, which is sort of going into the history of the move, uh, which I really, really enjoyed doing. I know you like that stuff, too. And then is it replicable? Is Meaning, you know, can other players do it? Um, how how unique is it to a player's build or their athleticism? Like a thing like, some speaking about Michael Jordan, some of the sort of, you know, I've talked about this before, the like secondary tertiary decisions that Michael Jordan could make in the air. Like not everybody has the physical tools to do that, like at, at the highest level um, or Kareem Skyhook. It seems like for someone that size uh, to replicate that move, um, they would have to have a certain you know type of skill set or, or touch or athleticism or combination of all those things. Um, and what and then also uh, was it. Was it practical? Was it useful? Like in a game setting, was it uh, because there are a lot of novel like a lot of moves have a certain element of novelty to them, like the skip to my Lou or uh, I sounded incredibly white when I just said that uh, <laughs> <laughs> or the, uh, the Iverson used to have that move called the answer where he would sort of I used to do this move. I was uh, in, in the driveway the, all, all the time. Do you know the one I'm talking about where he would sort of cross his arms like he doesn't go. Anywhere. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. sort of you He's, come back to where you started, kind of that move. Some um, of these moves, I think, were, just to put some historical context in this, some of these moves were very popular around the time that the internet was kind of starting, and then at the exact same time in parallel, you had and one mixtape oh, yeah. culture kind of developing. And so what was interesting about a lot of these is they just weren't super functional, but they were very flashy. And I think that, that Iverson move, that thing has been lost to time, because you didn't really go anywhere all the time you might i mean what i what i learned as i got older and started playing at higher levels is you're just way better catching and going with the first step than dancing a lot with the ball like that 
Yeah, and that's something that I in my uh, you know not, you have to cut some things obviously for for YouTube. You can't go all the way in. But one of the interesting things that uh, comes up is sort of specifically in the Hardaway video. Um, you just sort of unravel and uncover these schools of thought that pre-internet, um, the sort of assimilation and spread of of information wasn't what it is today. And I think that's something I don't want to be like, you young kids don't understand. But I mean, information just traveled so slowly that like the way teaching happened in New York, you know, on the playgrounds and through just sort of your day to day experience as a basketball player was different than you know, you well, you grew up and I, I kept thinking of you as a California person. But let's say you grew up near like somewhere like Mosswood or Oakland out there. Like the the worlds didn't sort of cross pollinate uh, the way they do today. You know, a kid can get on mm. Instagram and see uh, and, and there's sort of a there were the, just these oddities that would pop up like George Gervin grew up in Detroit um, and his experiences, uh, you know, he said he drew from Connie Hawkins and Julius Irving, uh, meeting him firsthand and playing with him with the Virginia Squires, put a pin in that one. I want to come back to that specific thing. Uh, but then wilt, um, it's funny that whenever you're researching a lot of moves, um, you come back around wilt seems to be a common denominator, uh, just how innovative and, and the way he sort of just wrecked the way the league was, uh, was going at the time. But, uh, in, in a, in a good, well, good and bad, I guess, depending on who you talk to. But uh, with going back to Hardaway, he's a kid that grew up in Chicago with a lot of just sort of playground and neighborhood outdoor basketball experience in his life. And then he sees Pearl Washington on TV, a New York guy. And he goes and says, I want to try to emulate this move that I saw on TV. Well, he couldn't quite do it the same way based on what he said. And uh, so he ended up doing it this other way where he dribbles hard between his legs to his left hand and then immediately back to his right hand. So it's basically like a two part move in one. Um, And I just find a lot of that stuff interesting, sort of like the evolution of ideas, the way things mutate um, and hang around and talking about like the novelty of moves. Um, there's just this kind of like Darwinism to the way ideas move forward. And, you know, um, a move that isn't practical, uh, you know, a lot of those things I'm sure over time have trickled into the NBA as it's gone along and not all of them have hung around and like the crossover is extremely practical and replicable. So it's hung around and it's a part of the greater vocabulary now. I know that was quite a quite a <laughs> the monologue I went on. There. I got it. It's OK. Yeah. It's OK. Yeah. So let's stick with innovation the idea of where ideas come from, just that meta concept. And oftentimes it's portrayed in sort of everyday culture as the light bulb moment where you just, you know, think, hey, no one's dribbling in front of them. Why don't I try it and cross over? And therefore I will become the king and godfather of the crossover. But that's not how it works. It's more incremental. It's more about building and making connections off of sort of the raw material that's already in place to work with. And this has been studied and looked at in other domains as well. And I think it applies to basketball where you have take the crossover. Now it's a pretty ubiquitous kind of, you almost need to have it as a way to weaponize your penetration game with the dribble, right? You need to be able to change directions and change sides. I think that's a fair assessment before I keep going. Oh, definitely. Okay. So, so if you backtrack, and this was, I think, one of the cool things about the way you're doing these videos, 
you know, Tim Hardaway gets a tremendous amount of credit, but he wasn't the first guy to have a crossover that was functionally effective. I mean, you mentioned Earl the Pearl, another guy you got into is Archie Clark in that timeline and right, just like all of these players that sometimes are smaller and then trying to figure out where it comes from in those guys usually takes you through this incremental process where maybe at first you're just slapping the ball from right to left like Bob Cousy and then maybe you're putting it through your legs and then you're adding a hitch and then you're adding a hesitation and as the dribbling rules become more relaxed this thing evolves to uh, I mean forget Tim Hardaway all the way to to Allen Iverson sort of what scraping the ball across the floor scraping the bottom of the ball across the floor as he scoops it from his left hand all the way over to his right hand I mean this to me is uh is sort of a fascinating journey along that line where it's not a light bulb but it's how can I build off of what comes before and that's always actually been one of my pet peeves when people compare eras or do the time machine thing is the guys who come after have all that knowledge and that and that knowledge is literally the foundation that they're building their skills and game on and if they didn't have it things would be quite different yeah i mean it's totally not fair at all because if you think about i always think about if we compared um let's say we compared a comedy like um i don't know like anchorman and then we compared it with um something from the 70s or the 80s like fletch it's like things evolve and we 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 sharpen them and the benefit of that sharpening sort of like you were saying really informs the the context of the thing that came later so it's like it's impossible to really all you can do is is just pay them respect for the context that they that they existed in i know that's like pretty central to your work i know um yeah. just the, and whenever whenever the and especially lately you know like the 96 bulls thing has been coming up a whole lot with with like comparing them to the great teams of the past um I, I think all you can really do is just uh be as informed about the context and and uh i don't know consider those things when you when you go to talk about it but uh well uh, let's, yeah. let's take jordan's three-point shot just on that specific issue a lot of discussion about you know transporting players and the idea that if Michael Jordan jumped forward in future, I don't know what time travel rules we're using. I don't know if we're using Back to the Future or Terminator. I don't know who's setting this up. Okay, but let's say that this is a thing that you kind of you want to go through the thought experiment in some good faith. Most people say, well, if you bring him into the game today, he would practice his three point shot more. Of course. Uh, he would probably be a better three-point shooter than he was back then because of that. Okay, not a not a terrible inference. But and this is the bit, and then they say, well, you also get all the training and all this. Other. The big one to me is the knowledge, because if you take players like Michael Jordan out of the timeline, the influence that they have on the players that come after isn't there. So the players that come after are emulating other guys. You see what yeah, I'm saying? Sort of, well, it's sort of like when uh, Homer Simpson steps on the bug or something in that in, in Simpsons, where he steps on the bug and then it causes Simps- some ripple Is that the Simpson, Simpsons movie? Is that? Is it? I feel like it might have been like a treehouse of horror, and then they're sitting there at the table at the uh, end. Okay, so it's like, like a butter. Yeah, everything seems normal, and then like Maggie uses her tongue to grab something yeah, off yeah, the yeah. table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a butterfly effect kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't even have to be that severe for me. It's just the idea that when you take a player that comes after 
you know, chronologically another guy or another era, another team, they all have that knowledge and the opponent doesn't. And we see this when points of innovation sort of interact or um, there's like a moment in the curve where something changes. Think about the Spurs and the Heat and those series in 2013 and 2014 and everything that was going on in that period from, okay, one team is potentially going to play small ball. Another team has all these sort of Euro, Euro motion concepts that people haven't picked up on. And those Spurs teams would get like a couple buckets a game just from running those big loop cuts where if you finally keep having the guy run around and circle around Tim Duncan with an open paint, like the guy trailing just, they didn't, they didn't have a defensive vocabulary to react to this. And that's the thing that you've actually used that word before, right? Like your vocabulary is the thing that builds and that's the edge that you're gaining with time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny how I, I have, coined or i've coined i've uh, that sounded bad uh, you I've, did you coined it i've given neologist well, this is my phrase that i use for this phenomenon i call this gimmick becoming gospel where this it's this process of things moving from the left of the spectrum to the right and like you said it, it's all over the place it's in music it's it's how we start with you know uh robert johnson and we ended up with prince you know it's just this idea of things evolving and and becoming accepted where something starts radical and then it becomes accepted and like um tim hardaway is a great example of this like um he uh he was doing something that was considered pretty pretty radical pretty unusual uh just really jarred the league like people didn't know what to do with it and eventually and that was considered on sort of the cutting edge and now we're to the point where and he was this young guy uh and now we're to the point where it's like trainers are teaching this move and i was watching a video the other day of two really innovative ball handlers like rod strickland and um and god sham god a guy that i mentioned in the video the guy who kobe bryant says taught him how to dribble and in that interview, they were both complaining about trainers, which I thought was hilarious. I was like, these two guys that used to be considered the coolest, hippest, most innovative dribblers are on here talking about how trainers have homogenized moves. That was something I was really interested to talk to you about. Um, I mentioned how like oddities used to pop up more, you know, I guess through sort of the isolation of through the lack of circulation of info. Um what do you think about that? Do you think that oddities are more or less likely to pop up today? And is that good or bad? Sorry, I took your show over again like I always do. <laughs> it's it's better than being on the couch. Like last time, I feel like we had 10 minutes of therapy for me. So uh, <laughs> is the idea here that basically Strickland and Shamgod were saying because everything is sort of regimented, you have there's less creativity, there's less innovation, there's less playfulness in the space. Is that the idea? Yeah, I well, you and I have kind of gone back and forth about this a few times that like there is this question of is it better for a player and and do we do we do we as a basketball culture just devil's advocate here ask this question younger players are they be being given ample opportunity to experiment and just be free and play basketball? Uh, because kids are being, and I, I've heard a lot of parents talk about this too, and high school coaches that players are being picked up 
not literally picked up. Maybe yeah, that's happened. I don't know. But players are being uh, headhunted by trainers. Like the moment that they get out of high school or they get to a certain age, trainers are, are it's becoming a more popular profession, I think, for ex-players. Uh, and they'll go and they'll just sort of instill this vocabulary in these players. And I, I guess uh, the question is, are players being liberated to experiment enough and just play? I know like LaMelo Ball is actually a good example. I know he has a trainer, but he's an example of a kid who has just been allowed to just experiment and play. Um, does that make sense? You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, my brain is going to my latest video, which is on Jalen Brown. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I comment on in this video is his growth feels like a product of studiousness versus sort of exploration or, um, instinct or some other word that we might apply to that. In other words, you can see the things he's adding in his game that are sort of staples around the, let's go back to your word vocabulary, right? Like other successful players have them in their vocabulary. I'm thinking of things like the way you get into a step back or certain, a certain dribble combination. And then as you learn that dribble combination, where your back plant foot goes to kind of add that athletic explosiveness, because it's all, it's all a ruse. Anyway, you're setting someone up, for like a hesitation where you want to get by them. So you put your back foot in the right position. And I'm thinking when, when I was growing up playing in the nineties, even with guys who ended up becoming, you know, successful, I, I grew up with a few guys who became professional basketball players. When we would work out or play, or you watch them go through their moves, it didn't necessarily have that sort of level of scientific studiousness to it. You just figured the move out. And as a result, if I filmed you, then you'd see that your back foot pushed off in a certain position as your you know left hand was setting up the up fake or whatever does that make sense well all these things are connected yeah i think because is that being allowed to happen as much today is the question yeah because like you said like today if if we were playing like trainers even tape a lot of their sessions i know it, it would would there would a lot of that oddity and like evolution be allowed to happen because the vocabulary of basketball is so homogenized now that it's like not only does everybody know the crossover you need to have that in your vocabulary you need to have a step back you need to have the a euro step um yeah i think all those things are connected yeah hmm you there yeah no i'm just <laughs> i'm thinking about i hate when i make you think because then i think <laughs> that yeah anyway <laughs> i even think about the guys who are then these pivot points for innovation where let's take reggie miller right just no one thought it was a good idea to run around endlessly like you're on a motorcycle and go out and you know hit the three-point line at the end of those routes or in transition he was like the first guy to run to the three-point line in transition regularly in the early 90s the idea of doing that and then how what it takes for it to become normalized. And, and of course, today now we're in a generation where I think a lot of kids are going to grow up emulating the way Steph Curry plays, shooting from different spaces, emphasizing quickness of release versus height, things like that, right? Um, what do you think? No, yeah, I, I definitely think that's... Uh, I, I definitely think that's the case, yeah. I mean, so, it, it's Steph... Good and bad. I mean, I've heard people lament this. I mean, just I've been researching sort of the evolution of just the dribble 
what I found through the, and I'm not, I don't think this is going to spoil anything for what I'm working on, but what I found is that it's, it's never as simple. Like, um, like we were just saying, it's never as simple as just a move just popped up out of nowhere. Um, just one day it wasn't, wasn't there and the next day it was. Um, although there are some interesting examples, like, um, have you ever heard of Kenny sailors? Yeah. Didn't, well, didn't I, we, didn't we talk about him recently? Maybe we did. No, I you thought, sent me, well, I mean, he's, he's, has certain a certain reputation for inventing the jump shot right if you go and watch footage and i would encourage people to go do this he played kenny sailors is a literal a farm boy who grew up in wyoming and he was playing one-on-one with his older brother and couldn't get his shot off yet his older brother was pretty big kenny sailors was a great athlete apparently and so one day he just decided hey i'm gonna start jumping when i shoot this and is in this you, is in like the forties, right? Late thirties, okay. I'm pretty sure. And yeah, and, and, and he's five ten. He's not a big guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, he's under six feet. Yeah, and so he just starts jumping when he shoots. And if you go watch this, it seriously looks like he was just dropped out of a time machine. So yeah. I guess that kind of yeah. contradicted what I just said a little bit. But <laughs> but it's but we're not talking about we're not talking about like a biological phenomenon. We're talking about hey, I should jump. It's pretty simple. Uh but it's the same thing as like hey, I should switch hands with the ball. Um I like that you do that accent every time something like this comes up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my voice for hypothetical people. Um but yeah, so I would encourage people to go watch that just because it is—it's sort of jarring how how mo- modern it is. So I guess things like that do happen, but uh, a lot of it, a vast majority of the time, we're just borrowing and emulating and mimicry. And uh, something I pointed out to you was it made me think of uh, a clip I saw of Conan O'Brien doing. Um, I don't know why I remember these things, but they just pop into my mind. Uh, him doing the commencement speech at Dartmouth in like 2000. It was after he lost his job or after he lost the Tonight Show. And he just started talking about how all everyone from his generation tried to emulate David Letterman and the people before him tried to emulate Johnny Carson. And, and their like persistence to emulate them and failing at it is what caused mutation. I'm using that word uh, and growth and originality subsequently so mm. well i think about the even if you have sailors and people starting to jump you know this idea of of getting out of your mental model of what the thing is basketball's floor bound right this is how you're supposed to play it go run and go run to the most advantageous position on the court near the hoop and try to get the ball to the person stationed in that position under the hoop that was a paradigm and then if you start jumping on offense, what's the counter to that? You jump on defense. And I think of someone like Bill Russell, right? I mean, that would be – are you going to do that in your move series? Can you do Bill Russell jumping? Can you do shot blocking as a move? Um, <laughs> you could. I mean, it would be a lot of research. So do you know about – I mean, the general idea with Russell when he came along, University of San Francisco, mid-1950s, is most coaches would say, don't leave your feet on defense. That was sort of um, a technical snafu, right? You were breaking the classical mechanics of the game. If you left your feet, you were vulnerable and things like this. And Russell Russell turned that on his head. And that's actually one of the reasons why I sort of buy Russell's value as a more modern player. Because when he came in, you had the shot clock, you had this floor-bound game, you still had racial dynamics taking hold, and yet 
when he left at the end of the 60s, he was still fantastically dominant. He was still incredibly infect- uh, effective with that. And all of those dynamics had changed. The racial dynamics had changed. Basketball, I think the year after he left, it was 1970 or 1971, was the highest paid of the of the major American sports per player, things like this. So you had expansion, you had the talent pool, you had money coming in, and yet you still had this counter that was put in just jumping and being a vertical presence in the paint as something that stuck much like, you know, the offensive version of that jump when you go to shoot instead of these old set shots that people used. Yeah. I mean, it's funny to think that jumping was so resisted uh, (laughs) at a time. All of them are resisted, right? It's true, but I think resistance is, I think resistance is good. Um, I don't, I, I think that, it's just scientific, you know, I think questioning and there's going to be people who dig in more than others. I know in the, in the crossover thing, I talk a lot about just the, the lax nature that sort of developed over the sixties and seventies, uh, in the way that officials handled palming the ball. I mean, if you go watch early footage, we watch guys like, uh, Cousy and we just say, how ridiculous. There's no way he could stack up against, uh, the ball handlers of today, but it was just like you listen to Kuzi talk and he admits it. He's even I, I listened to an interview where he said any any middle schooler in a schoolyard in America is doing what I did better than I did then. And uh, at a younger age. But so we had to kind of give him the context there, like we talked about. But um, over time, I guess. And was this your kind of perception of the way this happened? It was just sort of the the deluge of people challenging and pushing that rule. Do you think that the NBA eventually just said, you know, or it was sort of like bathwater warming up? Yeah, the the frog was in boiling water. I I do also think the ABA had a nice sort of boosting effect, right? Because the ABA was a league that had a little bit more flair, a little more creativity, a little more space with the three-point line, and they weren't quite as big either. So some of the teams were a little bit smaller. And I think the totality of that, the outcome of that, was a game where you had more space to work with, you had more freedom to dribble it. You know, if you haven't seen this particular video, Kyle does a great job going into it. The idea of letting the ball sit up in your hand more, I think, was a big one. And then so you can start pronating your wrist a little bit and and you're no longer, you know, tapping it with your fingertips on top of the ball. That sort of introduction the the presence of that the the permission of that move i think is very in line with the aba being a little bit more exciting having a little bit more flair being a little bit sexier they had the stripe ball and there's that relationship between space on the court and wanting to do stuff with the dribble so i do think that period helped lay the foundation but definitely frog and boiling water i mean when you look at how you can dribble even just in the 80s and just kind of year by year how it's incredibly difficult to notice a difference and then you watch a game from 1998 or 1996 and I think John Hollinger mentioned it on his most recent podcast with Nate Duncan even big men like Patrick Ewing remember when Ewing would post up and take Mm -hmm. a take a dribble and then just turn the ball over and rest it under his hand and then go 
Ah, I'm going to take another dribble and then back into his man and turn it over again. <laughs> ah, I'm going to take another dribble. The Chauncey Billups move where you're up faking by just completely putting your hand under the ball and then continuing to dribble. I mean, those things happen so slowly that it was hard to perceive. Yeah, definitely. And it's it, it really is fascinating to watch. Um, I, like you said, in the late 90s, I feel like it kind of hit a point where we were all just like, oh, OK, let's this is getting a little because, I mean, Iverson would Iverson not only would put it. I mean, he'd get really, really wide. And that was the difference between Iverson and Hardaway is that Hardaway talked a lot about how if you watch the way he did the move, um, he, he he did this thing. And there, I guess it was just a way that they taught the people around him taught when he was growing up in Chicago where they had this methodology they called being in the box which was all just about conservation of movement because um he was criticizing like Kyrie Irving saying that he thought he played around with his defender too much and he you know if you watch Hardaway almost looks like there's almost like a martial arts quality to the way he did his move <laughs> seriously he was just like yeah, 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 Kyrie you know? Kyrie does kind of look like a cat playing with his food sometimes when he gets into those incredible combinations right yeah, but he his argument was just that he was like he's putting extra wear on his body, mm. which Hardaway had bad knee problems. So I guess he's maybe maybe that's sort of an argument against that. Uh, that doesn't really cause coincidence fallacy there. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's to the point where ball handling skills have just sort of uh, permeated all the positions, and it's it's a way more common thing now. Yeah. Okay, so let's circle back while we're here on the ABA. And I think this will be a, a good segue into any more of the, the Chicago Bulls stuff. You, you mm-hmm. wanted to hit the doctor, Dr. J Julius Irving and George Gervin, same time, early ABA. The league wasn't quite as good. 1971, right? 72 Virginia Squires. Well, uh, can you imagine in the Twitter age, if your team drafted, Julius Irving and George Gervin in back-to-back years, if you just – these two guys fell out – imagine – no offense to Virginia. I live in Kentucky, so I assume anyone that lives in Virginia won't take this personally. But Virginia, I mean, it's it's just like – I'm sure there wasn't a ton going on there. For you to get these two generational talents dropped on, on your sports life just out of the blue – uh, and then to subsequently get rid of them. And I think it was in less than two years, wasn't it? Like it was – it was really quick. It was very quick. Let me let me check here. I'm pretty sure it was like they. I hate this this phrase. Sold the players to try to get rid of that. But they they sold the rights to these players uh, pretty quickly. Uh, but I, can you imagine that in the Twitter age? I, and I also can't really remember. I mean that that's got to be in the conversation with like OKC taking Durant and Harden yeah. next to each other. I mean it's it's up there. So. Dr. J was there for two full years, and then he went to the Nats in New York in 1974. And Gervin was there for one full year in 72, and then left uh, the following year. Yeah, and if if have you, I'm sure you've seen the footage of Gervin with Virginia is literally the skinniest basketball yeah, player yeah, yeah. I've ever seen. It's, it's like it's like college Durant. Yeah, I, I've said he 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 actually looks like his character from NBA Street, like like he looks like a cartoon character. I don't I don't know how. Yeah, I, what really fascinated me too is something that I think you see more in that era, but something a parallel I see between like Jordan. You were wanting to talk about that, maybe a little more of a segue. Uh, the way Gervin would sort of do this like mid range thing where he would jump, but. 
angle forward and sort of bring the ball down. And, and uh, he had just this really elastic frame where he would sort of contort midair and go under the defender and mm. still shoot an overhanded shot. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, like Jordan yes. did this a ton when he was younger because he had that sort of north-south ability to float and contort in the air. Jordan's game to me has – I mean, he. I think he talks about how he played baseball more when he was younger, but – it clearly has these like Dr. J, uh, David Thompson, just like all of the high risers that came before in the 70s that most people, you know, the average fan today doesn't know existed. Basketball started, you know, a few years before they were born kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It has all of that. And if you look at those other guys and the way they did things that you don't really see today very frequently in terms of body position in the air and the angles of your release and all that stuff. I mean, that was definitely present in his game and I think influenced from the, the immediately preceding period. Yeah. And that's, and that's an interesting evolution for Jordan specifically is that uh, he did sort of transition away from this, like just constant onslaught of the basket into, and a lot of, you just don't. I'm trying to think in the in the like late in that late '90s phase of his career. I'm trying to remember him like shooting that that same forward momentum shot like that. He just kind of, he just totally stopped doing it. Yeah. I mean it 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 turned into that like plant plant hard left or right shoulder fade away. He always had the dribble jumper, but uh, yeah, he he kind of stopped. Like if you go watch that 63 point game against the Celtics, uh, he he did that shot numerous times. And I was like, you just don't you, you kind of stopped seeing him doing that as his career went along. He didn't he didn't lean as much when he was closer to the hoop. I feel like he would go straight up out to about, I don't know, ten feet, you know, or I should say ten feet and out, right? And then going toward the basket inside nine, eight feet or whatever, I think he would try to basically go two foot jumping more in those tight spaces and create contact and all these things like his the mechanics of his game changed as his body evolved that that's a big one to me we've talked about this he put on those 20 or so pounds over mostly muscle over a pretty long period of time right like three to five years Mm -hmm. i think are the the typical estimates and so if you watch his game when he's younger and he's got these one foot takeoffs, assaults on the hoop, um, all these little contortions in the air, holding the ball with one hand, you know, duck, ducking under a defender. Those those pretty much go away by the second three-peat. And it's replaced, and I see this with Kawhi today, like when you add 20, 25 pounds of bulk and you start pounding people and you start, you know, you have to move that extra weight around the court, all of those contortions largely went away still had the hands and so he could still finish in a certain way around the hoop but i don't think you saw those sort of slippery up and under moves that these guys from the 70s were pulling off no no and i wonder i'm trying to think of guys in the modern league and that was something i wanted to ask you about it's just like i i lack a word for it a lot of times because it's like guys in the nba that i can remember that i can think of that are in that that 
six three to six seven range that have that just full body elasticity. Like they have it in their shoulders and their arms and their hips. I think the other day when we were talking, I called it gumbiness. It's sort of like just is there a way this dude can't bend? Like I feel like early Jordan was um, there's a quote. That's the, that's your quote for this video. Uh, <laughs> you should tease it. Is there a way this guy can't bend? Uh, but it, like Morant really has that. Just I feel like the the longer the limbs, the more it's sort of accentuated. Durant, um, you know, Vince during his heyday, T Mac, um, Dwayne Wade. I know had a lot of that fluidity. Uh, yeah. Do you, do you understand? Do you you feel the phenomenon I'm kind of describing? Or definitely. And I think a theme as you list those guys is you probably can't have too much bulk or mass on you i remember like i think maybe even at north carolina just like looking at oh my god that guy gets off the floor so fast yet doesn't have you know these huge incredibly explosive legs Mm -hmm. i i think that we're most i guess you kind of get into sort of like the marketability of players really too i i can you you can always kind of identify them now zion is an interesting case of course i don't want to derail myself but but i was just going to say sort of that cat it's sort of a cat-like quality almost we are just sort of captivated by those guys and i think another thing is like just mid-air control is a big part of that if you watch like i've watched like anybody who's around my like mid-30s age range um I don't even know how many times i've seen some of those those early jordan highlights of him i'm more I'm more captivated by his layup package than I am his dunks. I'm I'm confident saying that today as as a grown man. I find them more interesting. I don't know. Agree or disagree? I think maybe agree. Yeah. I I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I have a preference for one or the other. You have to pick right now. Um, which package am I more captivated by? Quoting that one too. Prob- pro- <laughs> Probably the layup package. I don't know. It's just it's it's fun. I don't. Know. There's the one where he gets in the air. I think it's against the Nets. Those ones where he just like jumps from outside the lane, and he's like, "No, no, okay, yeah, I'll do that." I no longer remember what we were talking about. I don't either. It's okay. <laughs> Is it something to do with basketball? I had a no, thought. No, we were talking about ty- types of athleticism. That's what we were talking about. The oh, the moving the weight. That was what I wanted to bring up. Well, something else too. Is Kawhi never really had that same. He he didn't. I don't remember him ever having that same fluidity, like total. No, fluidity. no, no, no. He's he, always a little stiff. Yeah, he he never had it. I'm just saying the presence of mass on people's bodies is something that the, the relationship, right? The speed power relationship, the amount of calories it takes to burn uh, in these games of endurance, the speed of the game. So we're now the last dance is out as we're recording this, and you look at the late 90s game and all of the mass that came in on the players in the last few years and the relationship between slowing the pace down and carrying all this extra weight, right? I I feel like this is completely overlooked when we think about body types, playing styles, what happens when guys get older, et cetera, et cetera. Well, modern weight training, is that sort of a factor in what we're talking about here? I think so, yeah. Because players were just skinnier i mean but, uh, and it so well i think there's two big factors right one was there was a stereotype around being quote-unquote muscle bound 
that most people don't realize. So even when sort of resistance training came in for a good decade, it was like this, what the, the Nautilus, there was this machine and, you know, <laughs> right. It's like provided some resistance, but you weren't going to quote unquote bulk up. You weren't going to be like one of those muscle bound bodybuilders. Don't worry. Who had this terrible reputation of not being able to move and being like oaf like and things like that. So there was that, but there's also the fact that for a very long time, you know, basketball was a track meet. It was a stamina sport. It was an endurance battle and constantly running up and down the floor. The idea of having to be muscle bound was not a body type that was associated with distance running. It would almost be like in 50 years, if all of the great Kenyan marathoners of the world looked like sprinters, it just, it just wouldn't make sense. That's true. Yeah. I, and I guess sort of marrying, sort of threading a needle between that and and I guess what you're looking for is just the, the 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 middle ground between that is what we call functional strength, something that you hear draft people talk about all the time. Um, yeah, I mean there is there is a limit to how much weight you can add, and still you know a lot of this is common sense. And speaking of adding weight, <laughs> I can I can attest to quarantine being hard on me in that way. It's definitely added to, to my difficulties moving around and. Uh, yeah, well, the, the hands, say, you know, you got the hands. So that's true. Yeah. We're all concerned about them S- struggling on that front currently. Um, send someone send Kyle a, a care package or something so he can <laughs> get those hands. But we need him 10 hours a day editing at the computer. Let's talk about something that we've wanted to discuss. We've sort of been sharing a little bit back and forth in the ba- back and forth in the background. Let's talk about some old Arvidas Sabonis. Oh, my Jesus. Yes. He's not your Vetus or my Vetus. That's no. your joke. That is, um, who came up with that? Sports Center anchor. I'm blanking on his name right now. Is that a Kenny Maine? Yes, I think it's Kenny Maine. Exactly. I didn't realize that. Thank I didn't you. realize that. Yes, yeah. that's where that comes from. Um, so I've gone down a few rabbit holes lately on the YouTubes where you can find some of these old Sabonis games. I think at a certain point I'm, I'm going to have to do a video on them. It's not in my immediate what do you say the the pile of gravel that never ends as you're trying to shuffle right yes that's the i thought you'd already done one maybe i'm thinking I've, no i've never done a sabonis video I, I talked about him uh in all time six men in a podcast recently but have not done a sabonis video and he's he's not on my immediate you know i have like my long list of videos to get to he's not even there so i think this is like a pipe dream that one day i'll get to him but sabonis well, I think people need to, the younger crowd maybe doesn't totally have the, I don't, I, I, whenever I put out something about Sabonis, like if I tweet something, a video or something, I don't know that everybody totally understands the fascination and I'm maybe, should that be framed a little bit for the younger crowd? Do you think? I don't know. That is exactly what I was going to do. Yeah. Sorry. Do you you want to do it? (laughs) No, go for it. Okay. Uh, So with Sabonis, there's sort of this aura around him that's created this legend right this this in a way he's kind of like the greatest what if player in nba history not just because of injuries we can get to that in a second but that's a good question what you just said do you think he is the greatest what if in nba history who else has an aura like him where if you go online on pockets of the internet especially sort of really well-studied international people who, who've seen the game in different countries and things like that they will say things like he could have been the best ever top five player ever uh, you know would have been 
ex MVP or whatever in the NBA. Um, all of the sort of accolades and superlatives that go with an all-time talent. And to the point of this framing, a lot of young people have probably never heard of him. Yeah, well, I mean, people know about his son, obviously, Demontis, um, who's really good as well. But different player types, I would say. He, I mean, Demontis is a good passer, good screen setter, really high basketball IQ, I would say. But anyway, people, people, I know that this is detailed in. Um, is it the other Dream Team? Is that the documentary where they talk about it a lot? You know, what I'm talking about the Lithuanian documentary, or is it? Oh. Yeah. There was one where they talk a lot about Sabonis specifically and what happened to them. Um, basically, it had to do with like the the way uh, the USSR, their relationship to their home country, right? Yeah, we're doing the worst job setting this up as we uh, <laughs> hit one tangent to the next in our, our wandering minds. Um, the The issue of a greater what if, like who else would be in that category for you? I mean, you, you, Lynn Bias, I mean, is a guy, you know, you think about people we just flat out lost. Um, I mean, Sabonis's situation is more he, he was good and he was shrouded in mystery because he just flat out wasn't allowed to come to the NBA. I don't think anybody drafted his rights at any point. Did yes, they? yes, 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 yes. So, okay. The, so, well, the bla- yeah, go ahead. Okay. So let me give the timeline here because I think this is what creates the mystique, which is probably the best word around him. He was drafted in i want to say the 1985 draft by like the hawks with like the 77th pick something like this right Mm -hmm. it was just grab his rights but that didn't go through for some reason i can't remember the particulars off the top of my head something to do with amateur status by the way he's over in russia at this point he's over in the former soviet union ussr Uh, this is where he's from this is where he's playing and they draft him, and then those rights are voided. And I think it was the well, very yep, in eighty five. He would have been twenty one, I think. So yeah, he would have been twenty 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 one because he's, he's he's December sixty four off the top of my head. Is that right? He's eighteen in that Virginia video that we were talking about the uh, the Ralph Sampson video. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So anyway. Uh, anyway, so he he was around that age in nineteen eighty five. I think it was the very next year in eighty six the Blazers actually drafted his rights. And then he didn't come over to the NBA for almost a decade, which is still for the Blazers, right? They still owned his rights, but he didn't come for almost a decade. So if you're watching the Dream Team and you're looking at Tony Kukoc coming over and all this, and a few years feels like a long period of time, or you know Manu Ginobili, and it's like a couple years. All right, this is like almost 10 years. And by the time he gets to the NBA, that makes him what 30 31 i think he turned 30 yeah 30 right around 31 in that season yeah. i think he turns 31. it was like he it was like he he if he was traveling from where he was to portland <laughs> it was like he crawled basically like all that time yeah it, it was it was that, an unbelievable that, that's how he got there it was Yes. It, was, it was a journey. That's why his was, knees were so bad <laughs> it was a 10-year journey he found a he found a rowboat yeah. made it across the ocean um so yes, Sabonis has all this mystique because he seven three probably probably like seven two and changed the game I was watching yesterday. He is they, they actually measured him in the international competition at what comes out to about just over seven two, and I think they do barefoot measurements in those competitions. Um, plays in these games in the Olympics, notably against David Robinson, where you know the USSR upsets. 
Team USA in the 1988 Olympics. The thing that probably led to the formation of the Dream Team, right? The fact that the amateurs so. lost. Yeah. And so Sabonis was behind this. I mean, this is David Robinson, who in 1988 wasn't a spring chicken either, right? I think he was 22 at that yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the most dominant college players ever. Right. I mean, he was and, – and the dude was like a freaking Adonis. I mean, he was – you watch young David Robinson, it's unbelievable what like the level of athleticism. But anyway, yeah, and, and dominated him and then uh but but he would pop up in little that's why we that's I think the context that we're trying to provide is like whenever you could find pre NBA Sabonis, it's just a treat. It's just like a little novelty. It's like finding a bootleg of a band that you really like that you never knew existed. You're like, Oh God, they played such and such song on at this show at, at this year where we had no idea that this existed so finding footage of it is uh it's a treat so well he has all he has all this flair as a passer he moves well for a big and so there's all this sort of aura around him by the way david robinson that gold medal game or, or i should say that uh i think they played the semifinals in the 1988 olympics that was a year after david robinson was already done at Navy, because remember he took those two years off. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they, they were, and the, that you know that team was loaded. That team, off the top of my head, I think Mitch Richmond was on that team. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Dan Marley. Was on Dan, that team. Dan Marley was on that team. Yep, he started in that game. I want to say Charles Smith was. On, I mean, it's just a bunch of NBA players and many All Stars, and they lost. And so all of this creates the aura of Sabonis. Now, as this is happening. He has like an Achilles injury a couple years before. He has another injury, which incidentally he rehabbed in Portland in like 1988. I think that's when he goes over to Portland. Doesn't play for him, but he goes in like, yeah, I'm part of the team. I'll rehab. I didn't know that. Wow. You dropped one on me there. Yeah. Yeah, But I mean, his body totally like the wheels come off. Well, he's, he's playing in the former Soviet Union. And so they do things like ask him to play constantly for the national team in addition to his club team. And in 1988, he was injured during those Olympics, and they had him out there anyway. And you can see the difference if you look at, I think for Patreons, I'm going to do, I recently watched the 1986 game against Team USA, which is a FIBA game, not an Olympic game. And Mm -hmm. I'll I'll put out the whole body of work as a special video for them um, on this game. But you can see the mobility difference in the two games. In 1986, he moves totally differently than in 1988 because he's he's playing in this darn tournament injured. So this adds to the mystique in a way, but it's also the idea that, okay, his body broke down and he was never the same. And so by the time you see him in the NBA, or even by the time you see him in the 92 Olympics for uh, Lithuania, right? It's, yeah. li- it's like, this is not the same Sabonis. You were robbed of peak or prime Sabonis because of the time and because of the injuries and you're left with this i think most people probably consider him the greatest what if in the sense of a of a ceiling right like he, he wasn't allowed to take care of himself i mean it's correct. just it's absurdity and you know all the different sort of machinations that caused that you can you can unpack those i'm not going to go there but um yeah he, he was he's a, a husk of himself basically by the time and i i don't think that i fully realized that when i was a kid um but it, it is phenomenal to watch him, even in like we were talking about. Ben found this amazing game from 1982 where he's playing Ralph Sampson. And I feel like these things, don't you find it kind of interesting that the USSR came over 
I guess maybe my Cold War history isn't super sharp, but I just find it interesting that they uh, – how many colleges did they play that season? Do you know? I don't know. I do love, huh. the f- I do love the fact that they were constantly throughout the Cold War trying to make everything a battlefield. And so you know, <laughs> ch- chess was a battlefield, right? And the space race was a battlefield. And all athletics were a battlefield. And in, in a way, that's fantastic because there's no bloodshed. But it's just very interesting that these t- these two superpowers who ostensibly are in this, um, you know, at loggerheads about a very, very giant global issue. Anytime something small, they're like, OK, yes, go play Virginia and Ralph Sampson. Yeah, yeah, Arv- Arvidas, go play strange. Ralph Sampson. Go prove a point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it's amazing to watch him. He looks like a guitarist in a garage band in the in the footage I watched. Uh, he kind of looks like a young Billy Mitchell. Like I don't know if you've seen, you know, I'm talking about the Pac-Man player. Go look it up. But he's just flying around. You know, the athleticism just clearly. Now Samson still clearly has the athletic edge on him, but Sabonis. I don't know if you've watched the game yet, but a little Sabonis, bit. Yeah. Shows him. You know, his his skill set was obviously a lot different and uh, and really. You know, just a remarkable passer out of the high post. I, I was telling you, every time he touched it, basically they scored out of out of the high post. So, uh, yeah, love Sabonis. Kyle, thanks for coming by. <laughs> okay, it was a pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Always love it. Follow him at J Kyle Man on Twitter. The name of the series on YouTube on the Ringers channel is Ball the Right Moves. Kyle's going to stick around a little bit longer for a post show. We'll move that over for Patreon subscribers. They help make this podcast possible. Patreon.com slash Thinking Basketball. If you want to support this show, if you want to sign up, if you want to get access to that post show, that'll be posted over on Patreon. We'll continue talking a little bit more about these historical what-ifs over there. Also, for Patreons, I have cut that Arvidas Sabonis analysis from the 1986 game against David Robinson and the USA. So look for that. That'll be up in the next week. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. And as always, I hope wherever you are, especially right now, that you're having a great day.